I think the best songs that we sing together as a church are the songs about the cross. That's the theme of our life, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the best thing that we have to sing because in it, it is our salvation. In the death of Christ, we find our life. In his humiliation, we find our exaltation. It is the cross which is what we boast in. It's Good Friday. It's good because of what Jesus did for us. It's a strange thing to add that adjective to this day, to call this commemoration good. Crucifixion was a brutal, horrific execution. It's a horrible way to die. The death of anyone by the cross was excruciating. It was meant to make a public spectacle of the one who died, to make them kind of a pinnacle of shame. It was to strip them of all dignity, to show them that this is the refuse of the earth. It was to inflict the greatest amount of pain and agony on any human being that they could endure prior to their death. It was torture. Many, many people died by means of the cross. Many were crucified. Many died that horrific death. But we don't call the day on which they died good. We'd call it shameful. We'd call it tragedy. But when Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, we ascribe to that day good. We call it Good Friday. It is the crucifixion of all crucifixions. It is the one that is distinct from all other deaths. It is the death of all deaths when Christ died. It is the day of all days. It is the event of all events. There is something unique, something distinct about his death that's superior and better, and if we can call it good, about his death. The thing that makes it distinct is who died on that cross that day. That's what makes it distinct. That's what sets it apart as good, was who died. There is a passage in the Gospel of John. It happens on Good Friday. It's in John chapter 18. It is the account of Jesus being interrogated by the Roman governor, Pilate. And that's the passage I want to reflect on for these moments that we have together. It is not focusing, per se, on the death of Christ, but it is, it is a lens that is given to us by which we see the death of Christ for what it is. Or rather, it helps us understand who it is who died on the cross on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago. By Jewish reckoning, that day began at sundown for us the night before. That's how they reckoned days. It was from sundown from one day until sundown of the next day. And so Good Friday, by Jewish reckoning, really would have began when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as it goes through the night, all that Jesus experiences, having been arrested, betrayed by Judas, taken in the garden by uh, 
crowd armed with clubs and swords, brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to be interrogated by them, false witnesses coming before them to try to trap Jesus so that they can sentence him to death. And then that morning, that Jewish council bringing Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, so that they can get a legal warrant for execution laid upon Jesus. Jesus has already been going through Good Friday by the time we come to this point. It's the morning of that day, Friday morning, and Jesus is brought before Pilate. And as he has this conversation with the Roman governor Pilate, we see that Jesus is a king, but he's a king of a different sort, of a different cut of cloth than this world has ever seen. He is a unique king. He's a king unlike all others, a king not of this world. That's what's revealed in this conversation. It's a fascinating one. It's worth our attention to think through. It's a conversation that we kind of want to drop right into and imagine ourselves as a fly on the wall between Pilate and Jesus. It begins as Jesus is in Pilate's headquarters. It says in verse 33 of John 18, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? The very setting of this is instructive to us. Pilate's in the headquarters, which would have housed a garrison of Roman soldiers, probably about 600 of them. And it's where Pilate meets with Jesus. It's located there near the temple grounds. It's a place filled with Gentiles. And so, the Jews would not go there because if they did, they would be defiled. They could not enter into the headquarters of Pilate. Otherwise, they would be associating with Gentiles. They would be ritually unclean. They would have to go through a process of becoming clean again before they could congregate with other Jews. Jesus is in there. The reason Jesus is in there is because the Jewish leaders want him dead. Unlawfully so. He's committed no crime. He's done no wrong. And yet the Jewish leaders want this Jesus of Nazareth to die. So much so that they raised up false accusations against him. And now they're trying to manipulate a Roman governor to do their beckoning to basically murder this man. But... They will not go into that room lest they defile themselves. They can murder, but they can't associate with Gentiles. Now before we heap up condemnation upon those Jewish leaders, take heed of how foolish we can be about trying to store up some sort of our own righteousness while inside of us our hearts are full of iniquity and sin. And we think we're okay because we made it to church this morning, but we lived like a demon all week long. Don't be deceived because God isn't. Pilate's first question to this Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? 
The way that it's asked is basically the emphasis on the you. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's obviously heard some accusations from the Jewish leaders about what Jesus has supposedly done wrong, and they're making the claim that Jesus is purported to be the king of the Jews. They're trying to make Jesus look like a political enemy of Rome, and to Pilate's ears, that would sound bad. If there is some sort of nemesis to Rome or to Caesar, then Pilate's job is to do away with this man. But when Pilate walks into the room and sees Jesus, it's almost laughable. You're the guy? You're supposed to be the one that's king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, most kings try to make themselves look kingly. That happens today with influential attorneys. They have to buy the right car and wear the right suit so they look the part. Happens with our politicians. They have to wear the right suit and say the right words so they look the part. People try to fulfill the role that they think they possess. If you are a king, then you wear the garb and you have the entourage of a king. But Pilate walks into that room and Jesus has been forsaken by all of his disciples. He's not wearing anything fancy. Are you the king? Jesus is basically a wandering rabbi who had fishermen and tax collectors for his followers, and they all left him. Jesus looked no more like a king than I do. But this is exactly, and I'm not a king, by the way. <laughs> Isaiah 53.2 is exactly what we ought to expect for this king. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Externally, Jesus did not look like a king. And Pilate recognized that. Jesus answers, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, if you're on trial for your life, and you are being interrogated by the person who holds your life in your hands, you usually don't try to become the interrogator of the person who's interrogating you. But Jesus, any place he walks into, always dominates. He is always the most important person in the room, even if he doesn't look the part. As soon as he opens his mouth, the sword of his words comes flowing out. And he puts Pilate on trial. He takes the driver's seat. And Jesus shows that he's interested in motives behind Pilate's question. And I think that he gives Pilate a bit of an opportunity here to express any semblance of faith that Pilate could muster at this moment. If Pilate is asking of his own accord, he might be kind of interested in who this man is. He may have thought this own, his question up on his own. 
And he may have some sort of curiosity about this man and wondering who he really is. Or he could be asking it because the Jews just told him that. And he has no really curiosity in this. He's just kind of an uninterested third party. If he asks of his own accord, he may be searching in the tiniest bit. There were other Gentiles, after all, that Jesus had experienced in his life who had come from the east, who came to meet the king of the Jews. It's the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2. Wise men from the east saw his star, and when they appear, they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I wonder how many have heard something of Jesus, and the only reason that they ask a question about them is because it's kind of been planted in their mind by some external factor, but they have no sincere interest in their heart. What do you say about Jesus? If you had an audience with him, what would you ask him? Why would you come to him? Would you just kind of make time for him because you've heard so much from everybody else about him? Or is there any sincere desire in your heart to know who this is? What do you say about him of your own accord? Or do you just parrot back what you've heard from others? Pilate's answer reveals his heart. He says, am I a Jew? In verse 35, Pilate responds carelessly. He's no Jew, so his conclusion is basically, why in the world would I ever care about the king of the Jews? He has really no interest. He's already told the Jewish leaders, take Jesus yourselves and judge him by your own law. He says that in verse 31. What a sad day for Pilate. He has the king of the Jews right in front of him. A private audience with him. To talk about anything in the world with him. But he doesn't care because he thinks he's just some nobody that has no influence on his life. What a missed opportunity. Because though Jesus looks unimpressive on the outside... And although the title of King of the Jews is a title of mockery at this point, he happens to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and Pilate staring right at him. Pilate goes on and says, Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. He knows that Jesus is unimpressive. He knows that the, it's the Jewish leaders who've passed him off. And then he asks this question, what have you done? He can see Jesus is this unimpressive person externally. And so he asks the question basically, what have you, what have you done to get yourself in all this trouble? You've got the nation just raging against you. What did you do? 
Pilate acknowledges it is the Jewish leaders that handed him over to him, which, by the way, makes their accusation just utterly ridiculous. If Jesus is really claiming to be king of the Jews and is any threat against Rome, then he would have some followers that are following him. But right now the Jews want to kill him. And so their whole accusation that he's a dangerous threat, this king of the Jews, just falls flat because people just want to kill him. So Pilate's saying, what have you done? Why are they so mad at you? And indeed, what has Jesus done that people want to kill him? Jesus answers that question. It's not a direct answer, but it answers the question. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The thing that Jesus had done to get people so riled up about him is this. John 3, 19 through 21. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What has Jesus done? Oh, he came from heaven to earth as the light of the world and the darkness hates the light because it exposes their wicked deeds. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is so different. He is so different from every other king. He's not Alexander the Great. He's not Napoleon. He's not a George Washington or a Grant or an Eisenhower leading armies into battle. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, he admits, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He doesn't do things the way the world does things. He's not a king the way the world expects a king to be. He is so unique, so distinct. He's otherworldly. Pilate's superficial response to this is, so you are a king? Pilate tries to get a grip on what Jesus is saying by reducing what he said to just the most basic component. It's around this time that Jesus responds, you say that I am a king. He basically implies yes, but not the way that you think about it. It's a roundabout way of saying yes, but at the same time, he can't let Pilate's definition of king be what Jesus means. Jesus, if I can paraphrase him, says, the way you use that word and the way I use that word are worlds apart. Remember, my kingdom is not of this world. You have no idea what kind of king I am. 
And so to help Pilate understand just what kind of king he is, he expresses the purpose for which he came into the world. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The end of this conversation is coming quickly, but before it does, Jesus speaks in this manner for this purpose I have come into the world, and for this purpose I was born. Now, the Bible doesn't often record facial expressions, but I wonder if at that moment Pilate's eyes kind of widen and his eyebrows kind of lift up, and he kind of has this depiction of astonishment at what Jesus just said, because Jesus has just said basically that he is an alien to this world. He is foreign. Not only that, but he existed before he came into it. Who am I talking to? Should be the response. That's not really a statement you hear from ordinary individuals. You have a conversation after the service with the person next to you and, you and they say something like that. You'll very quickly find that you have something else to be doing. <laughs> but Jesus speaks it with all sincerity. The reason he came, the eternal Son of God taking on flesh, was to bear witness to the truth. He didn't come to just be a lecturer to facts. He came to bear witness to that which is fundamentally true about this world, about God, about salvation, about love, about grace, about life, about heaven, about hell, about sin. He came to bear, truth, bear witness to the truth came to reveal the truth of God to a world that has rejected God. And Jesus finishes by saying, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you of the truth? A lot of people would say, yeah, I follow my own truth. I like facts or I like my own facts, or I make my own truth. Jesus says exclusively, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You listen to his voice like a sheep listens to its shepherd, like a student to its teacher. Truth consumes your life. Pilate concludes this conversation with this question, seemingly eager to get out of there because he doesn't stop for an answer. But he says to Jesus, what is truth? And he walks out to go converse with the Jews. It's a great question, but just a little bit off the mark. This is not 
time for some philosophical discussion about models of truth. The question itself is a good one, but it would be better asked, not what is truth, but who is truth? And Jesus makes that claim in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is found in Jesus. So as we apply this to Good Friday, what you need to do is follow what Jesus just said to the cross. Because as this king, who has a kingdom not of this world, goes to the cross, he is revealing some truth there. He is bearing witness to some truth. And the basic truth that he's bearing witness to is that sinners can be reconciled with God by no other means except by the blood of the Lamb who was crucified there at Calvary. That's the truth. At the cross, you see the truth of the Holy One being condemned for the unholy people. You see the righteous one being treated as if he's unrighteous. At the cross, you see the Lamb of God bearing the sins of the world. At the cross, you see the intersection of justice and love and mercy and holiness. At the cross, you see the death of Christ, but you find the life for yourself. At the cross, you see your sins forgiven. You see your life transformed. You see your whole world changed. At the cross, you see, in a word, truth. Why? Because of who was crucified there that day. A king who's not of this world. If you look to Jesus, there alone is the truth that you need. We have the opportunity now to take communion and to reflect on really what Jesus means to those who have trusted him. This is a, an important time because it, it basically proclaims for those who take it, Jesus is everything to me. He's the one who paid for my sins. He's the one who cleanses me. He's the one who brings me to the Father. He's the one who makes me new. He's the truth. This is not something to be done flippantly or trivially. It's not something to be done by a superficial Christian either. Someone who's a Christian in name only, but really shows nothing in their life of allegiance to Christ who is the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. That means that you follow him. You live for him. You live like he is your Lord, your Savior, your everything. You love him. And because you love him, you also love his body. 
which is the church. You love his people. You love being around his people. You fellowship with them. You commune with them. You encourage and exhort and edify them as they do the same to you. You live in harmony and unity with them. You forgive them as you've been forgiven in Christ. You receive forgiveness from them as you've been forgiven by God. And so this is something for those whose lives are marked by the truth of Christ. This is important because the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The Lord takes this seriously and so ought we. When we eat the bread, we're basically saying, Christ was the sacrifice for my sins. When we drink the juice, we're basically proclaiming Christ shed his blood and died for me so that I can live. If you don't believe that, then just let this pass, please. This wouldn't be appropriate for you to take and we're not going to heap scorn and judgment on you. We're not looking for those who aren't taking it, but just want to give you that fair warning. But if, it, if Christ is this to you, then we invite you to take of this.